our scripture and thank you for being here tonight. We're grateful for your presence. I know we got a lot of young people away at camp this week and it looks, uh, well, you can see the picture right here, <laughs> empty. But we hope they have a great week and we're very glad that they have the opportunity to go to be together, to be around Christians and to enjoy one another's company to learn and to grow as young people in Christ. And so we're very thankful for the opportunity that they have, and we pray that God will bless them with a great week and that they'll come back safe and sound. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1 in our study tonight. Let me invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11 in our study tonight, and we're going to be talking for a moment or two about spiritual growth in Christ, and that's the goal, is to grow in Christ. We want to be all that we can be as God's people, and that is a real possibility. It's a challenge, but it is a possibility. And you remember Peter, when he wrote his first epistle, said to new Christians, as a newborn baby, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. And then in the second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter would say, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so that's our goal, to grow in Christ, to be what God would have us to be. And so we're going to be talking about that in our study tonight. Specifically, as I said a moment ago, we're going to begin in verse 3. And we'll look at verses 3 through 11 in this context as Peter talks about the importance of growing in Christ, growing spiritually. I want to begin tonight by asking you this question. How would you rate your spiritual growth in Christ? If someone were to ask you about your spiritual maturity, the level of maturity where you are right now, what would you say? Would you say that you have the faith and maturity of maybe the level of kindergarten, elementary school, intermediate school, high school, college, graduate school. How would you rate your growth in Christ? Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Tonight, as we think about spiritual maturity, I want us to understand that, number one, it is a challenge. I would, I would certainly say that. But it is a possibility. We can grow in Christ. And it really all begins with our attitude, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later in our study. But I want to begin by, first of all, talking about the basis for our spiritual growth in Christ. The basis for our spiritual growth in Christ. And there are a couple of thoughts here, and they're tied to verses 3 and 4. First, we have to understand something about the author of Scripture, and then the aim of Scripture. So by way of the author of Scripture, Peter informs us of the divine source of Scripture. Look, if you would, at verse 3. 
as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The source of this book that we call the Bible is ultimately God, isn't it? Drop down, if you would, and look at verses 20 and 21. Peter said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. But now note what he says. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying here is that holy men of God were born along by the superintendence of God's Spirit. And so they received revelation as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. You remember in John 16, verse 13, Jesus said in verse 12, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to bear them now. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. God is the author of Scripture, isn't He? The source of Scripture. Peter said, look, God's Word is not the product of man. There is not a human being alive. There's not a human being from the present that had the ability to come up with this book that we call the Bible. The beauty of this book is recognized in the fact that it is woven together, both covenants. And 66 books, all intricately woven together, providing us ultimately with one grand theme. That's the redemption of the human family. So what Peter said is that God is the responsible, God is responsible for this book that we call the Bible. Now, David many years ago said, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His Word was on my tongue. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit guided David and others to pen the Old Testament. The New Testament, as we well know, there were many human writers, but they were governed, superintended by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired of God. In other words, it is God-breathed. Imagine if you can the very creator of this universe, wanting to share with us revelation, giving us insight into the mind of God. That is an astounding thought, isn't it? That God would think enough of us to lend insight into His mind, His nature, His will for us. So God is the supreme source of all Scripture. And Paul would emphasize that, as I said a moment ago, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, not only do we have the source of Scripture, as Peter talks about here, but we have the sufficiency, the divine sufficiency of Scripture. Listen again to what Peter said. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us 
by glory and virtue. Peter here is saying that God has given us everything that we need to know in the realm of life and godliness. So in summation, what does that mean? It means that the Scriptures are all sufficient. Everything that we need has been revealed. There's nothing lacking. There are no shortcomings in Scripture, but rather everything that we need. Now, when we talk about the Word of God, and the fact that God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, sometimes we'll say that there are facts that must be, that must be believed. For example, in the book of John, you remember in John chapter 20, verse 30? John said, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but He said, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is a fact. And the book emphasizes certain factual matters. The fact that Jesus is God's Son. The design of Scripture is to produce faith in the lives of people. That we might come to a saving knowledge of faith in Jesus. Now, what was it Jesus said, John chapter 8? Except you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. The book of John was produced for the purpose of providing us with factual information about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, facts that must be believed. And then there are certain commands that must be obeyed. For example, you remember Paul when he was in Athens and preached that great sermon on Mars Hill. He said, the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a command. Every person in order to comply with the will of Almighty God, must be willing to repent of sin. Pentecost Day, when Peter and the other apostles preached that great sermon, you remember? They were in Jerusalem, Pentecost Day. The church began, and when they were pricked or cut to the heart, they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, all right, here's what you need to do. Number one, repent. That is a command. Now, there are also promises to be enjoyed. Listen again to what Peter said. According his, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Are there promises contained in the Bible? Are there certain things that God wants to make us aware of so that He might bless us in this life? You better believe it. You think about all of the exceedingly great and precious promises contained in Scripture. I mentioned a moment ago, Acts chapter 2. When those people were cut to the heart as a result of that divine message they heard, they wanted to know, okay, what's the remedy for our sin? And the Bible tells us, the remedy for sin is the blood of Jesus. It's called pardon. So he said, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Is that not a promise of God? 
Did the Hebrew writer not say, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more? That's a divine promise, isn't it? That every person who turns to God, simple trusting faith and obedient faith can expect God to uphold His end of the bargain. That when God says, I will forgive you, I will pardon you, He'll do just that. What about with regard to the privilege and power of prayer? Is that not a promise given to us by God. Didn't Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 say in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are open unto their prayers? Can we expect God in heaven to hear our prayers? John said this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, listen to Him, He hears us. That's a promise, isn't it? And as Peter said, it is an exceedingly great and precious promise. Prayer is a spiritual blessing. So you think about the privilege of pardon, the privilege of prayer, the fact that God has promised to stand by us, come what may. Didn't the writer of Hebrews say, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper? Can I bank on that? Can I trust that when God says, I will stand by you, come what may? Do I have that kind of assurance? Yes, I do. So there are certain promises that we enjoy, promises that we should not take lightly. So, we think about the author of Scripture. But then what about the aim of Scripture? Well, listen again to what Peter said beginning in verse 3. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Two thoughts here as we contemplate the aim of Scripture. Number one, Scripture is intended to educate us. Isn't that what Peter's saying? That we've received all these great and precious promises by Almighty God, that we might be partakers of His divine nature? How is it that we come to know something about enjoying fellowship with God? Enjoying an intimate relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. God intends for His Word to be educational, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, he's going to talk about, in just a moment or two, the Christian graces, one of which is knowledge. God wants to educate us. Think about in Titus chapter 2. Paul said, God's graces appeared to all men, instructing us. That's educating us, teaching us. The aim of Scripture, number one, is to educate us. Number two, is to liberate us. Look again at what he says. That through these exceedingly great and precious promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, drop down if you would, look at chapter 2 for a minute. Chapter 2, verse 21, or rather verse 20. Peter here is talking about those who have forsaken the right way, 
And so then in verse 20, he said, if after they have escaped the corruptions or the pollutions that are in the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's the idea. Somebody has been educated. They, they've come to a knowledge of divine truth. They have obeyed the gospel, but sadly, they have once again become entangled back in the world. Jesus said it like this, You shall know the truth, and what will the truth do? He said the truth will make you free. In other words, truth liberates, doesn't it? What was it Paul said? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man. Liberation. That's the idea. So, the aim of Scripture, number one, to educate us. We wouldn't know anything about the mind of God were it not for Scripture. We wouldn't know anything about salvation if it weren't for Scripture. We wouldn't even know that we had a human spirit without Scripture, would we? So you think about the intent of Scripture, the aim of Scripture. It is to educate us, and then it is intended to liberate us. Now, there's a second thought I want you to consider in our study. First, we, th we think about the basis for spiritual growth in Christ. Secondly, though, the building blocks of spiritual growth in Christ. The building blocks of spiritual growth in Christ. Now, I want to begin by talking about our attitude towards spiritual growth. If we're going to grow spiritually, there are a couple of factors that are going to be very, very important. Number one, there's going to have to be some interest on our part, isn't there? I mean, you're going to have to be interested enough to want to grow spiritually. It's, it's not going to happen by accident, is it? You can't put your Bible on the nightstand beside your bed, open, open that Bible up, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, and be filled with knowledge. It doesn't work that way, does it? The only way that I know to grow spiritually is to roll up your sleeves and start studying. Study leads to growth, doesn't it? Now, with regard to interest, there are a lot of things that we're interested in in life. It, it might be that you have a certain hobby. I, I remember years ago, a friend of mine's dad was interested in ham radios. He became a ham radio operator. And really, that's not an easy thing to get involved in. It takes a lot of, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort. But there was an interest there. You know, when people, when people pick up a hobby, they typically have a measure of interest in that hobby, don't they? They try to learn about it because they want to become proficient in it. Well, we've got to be interested in spiritual growth. We've got to be intent on spiritual growth, and we've got to invest in spiritual growth. Now think about it for a minute. You've got to be interested, number one. Number two, you have to be intent. In other words, this has got to be something that is at the top of the list, isn't it? I'm going to grow spiritually. 
All right, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to work out my plan, and then I'm going to follow that plan. It takes dedication. It takes time. It takes effort. But you know what? If we invest in spiritual growth, if we invest in the process, will it bless us? you think it will bless your life? I think it will. You know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, I wish I, I, wish I knew more about the Bible. Or I just can't remember certain verses in the Bible. It's amazing to me how sometimes people can rattle off like that. Box office scores from the basketball game, football game. They can talk about all kinds of statistical information about the game. How many yards this guy ran for. How many yards this guy rushed for. How many receiving yards this guy, this guy, well, how many yards? Let me back up. getting ahead of the game. Sometimes people, they know how many yards a guy's rushed. They know how many receiving yards a guy has. But then when it comes to Scripture, what do we say? I can't remember the verses. Can't remember this. Can't remember. Listen, if you, if you are interested and you are intent on knowing God's Word and on growing spiritually, I promise you, you can grow. It's just that easy. Now, it's going to take some work. It's going to take some time. It might be that you want to take out some little index cards. And on one side of that card, you write a verse out. On the flip side of that card, you write where that verse is found. And you use that, and over time, what do you do? You memorize an arsenal of Scriptures, don't you? Well, that leads to spiritual growth, doesn't it? So there's got to be interest, there's got to be intent, and there's got to be an investment. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you some effort. But it will be well worth it. I promise you. Now, Having said that, what about activating spiritual growth in Christ? How can we make it happen? Here I am, I want to grow spiritually. I want to become mature in Christ. I want to follow what Peter's saying here. And I want to try to adorn my life with what typically is called the Christian graces. So look at verse 5. Peter said, but also for this very reason, Giving all diligence, and the word diligence here means earnestness, to strive after. And the idea is that I am earnestly in pursuit of these characteristics. I am striving to the best of my ability to master these things. Now, again, Bearing in mind, it's going to take time. Some of the things that we're going to talk about, some of these traits may come easier than others to you. Some things may, some things may come very easily. Others, not so easy. So, look at this catalog list of traits that Peter says we are to adorn our lives with. And so he said, giving all diligence, add to your faith. 
Why do you think he began with faith? Faith is, faith is ultimately foundational, isn't it? I mean, we've got to build on our faith. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. All right? So we have faith. And the Hebrew writer said, without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to God. So we begin with faith. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. So here I am, a person of faith. And I want to grow my faith. I want to see my faith increase and blossom so that it might be a blessing in my life. So here's what Peter said, all right? I want you to earnestly follow after, strive for these traits. Adding to your faith, virtue. When you think of the word virtue, what comes to your mind? Moral excellence? Someone has said it is the desire to do what is right. We need more of that today, don't we? Could I ask this question, to whom is Peter writing? He's writing to Christians, isn't he? And Peter is saying, look, as a child of God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to add or multiply these virtues in your life or these characteristics. I want you to lay upon the foundation of faith virtue. This determination to do what is right. Now, think about it. A babe in Christ may not know much, right? If I am a babe in Christ, that means I am a novice in the faith. But just because I am a novice in the faith, a babe in Christ, doesn't mean that I can't determine in my mind, you know what? I'm going to follow this course. I am going to do my best to do what's right every single day. You know what? Sometimes I may stumble and fall. Sometimes I might not stack up and be what I ought to be, but I'm going to do my best to always do what's right. Let me give you an example of somebody that I believe had that desire. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph was... Boy, I tell you what, I think Joseph was just an incredible individual. I know that we all have our heroes in the faith. And I've thought a lot about some of the great heroes of faith, but to me, Joseph stands, stands high up on the list of spiritual giants. Joseph was sold out by his brothers at the age of what? Do you remember? Seventeen. 17 years old, a teenager. And we said a minute ago that you don't have to be very old in the faith to have a determination to do what is right. Joseph was a young fella of faith, wasn't he? So he finds himself in a foreign land. He ends up down in Egypt. And the Bible tells us he is entrusted with a stewardship in the household of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife begins to make advances toward him, doesn't she? She wants him to have sexual relations. Now, think about it. Joseph is 17 years of age. Hormones are probably raging. 
foreign land, separated from family and friends. Number one question, who's going to know? Nobody there to check up on him. He doesn't have his father looking over his shoulder saying, son, are you trying to do what's right every day? How's your relationship with God? The Bible says that this woman was persistent day after day after day. And do you know what Joseph did? When she pressed him and pressed him and pressed him, he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is the determination to do what is right. And so, as children of God, whether we are new to the faith or whether we've been a Christian for a long time, to simply make up our minds, to say, you know what, I may not know everything, but I know this, I'm going to do my best to do what's right every single day. And in so doing, what will happen? God will bless our life, won't He? Now, you're not going to believe this, but it's almost 10 till. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to put a peg down here and come back next week. Because I want us to look at these characteristics in more detail. I mentioned a moment ago Joseph. I want to share with you another example very quickly. Timothy. Timothy was a young evangelist. Timothy, when Paul wrote the first letter to him, may have been in his 30s. And so Timothy is a product of a godly mother and grandmother. That's what Paul said in his second letter to Timothy. But when Paul wrote to Timothy as a young evangelist, he talked about the importance of being a Christian example, of showing himself as an example of the believers in word, in conduct, in faith, in love, in spirit. And then here's what he said, in purity. Over in chapter 5, verse 22, here's what Paul said. He said, keep yourself pure. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, here's what Paul said again. Writing some five, six years later, Paul writes to Timothy. And again, I think about Timothy being a younger man. And Paul says, all right, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to flee youthful lust. What do you think he's saying there? He's saying, Timothy, don't you take your eyes off of doing what's right. Temptations will come. There will be enticements from the devil out here. And what you've got to do is say, you know what? I have made up my mind. As a matter of fact, when we become a child of God, what have we said in effect? We have said, we're going to follow the Lord. He is going to be the captain of our life. He is the Lord of our life. That means the Lord's the one who is in the captain's chair, isn't He? He's calling the shots. So when we became a child of God, what we said in effect was, we are going to do what's right at all costs, come what may. Is that right? Isn't that right? Doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we're flawed, doesn't mean that sometimes we don't stumble and fall, but for the most part, what we're saying is, we have a determined spirit. And that spirit is, we're going to do what's right, come what may. And here's the beauty of it, we can do that, can't we? We can do it. All right, we're going to close there. It's 10 till. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, 
I want to encourage you to consider carefully becoming a child of God tonight. And here's why. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Today, today is the day of salvation. I don't know what tomorrow holds to you. You got plans tomorrow? Many of us have plans. Many of us have things that we do every Monday. We have a routine. Look, the Lord could come. Death could come. If the Lord were to come, if death were to come and you're outside of Christ, you don't have any hope. Why not tonight make the decision to put Christ on in baptism? What would you need to do? Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Repent of all your sins, confess His name before others, and then be buried with Him in baptism so that God can wash away your sins. Acts 22, 16. If you're here tonight and maybe you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, you need to be back in fellowship with God and His people. Listen, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And the assurance is God will abundantly pardon. 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?